Blog Talk Radio. Hello, Stephen James here, and welcome to the Story Blender, the place where great storytellers share the secrets of great storytelling. And also, here's hoping that your spring is as beautiful as mine is here in uh, Tennessee. It's perfect for trail running or hiking or just getting outdoors. And our guest today is not from Tennessee, but comes to us from Providence, Rhode Island. And he's the critically acclaimed USA Today best-selling author of 35 novels. John Land is perhaps best known for his Caitlin Strong novels, a woman that the New York Journal of Books calls one of the strongest female characters ever to make it on the page. And the uh, Los Angeles Review of Books agrees, calling her the best female protagonist out there. John's known as the king of the intelligent thriller. He's a master at writing action in cool, dark westerns. Uh, In addition, John is highly respected as an encourager of aspiring writers and an expert at pitching stories to agents and editors. And he often presents at this uh, on on this at uh, the international conferences. So, John Land, thanks for joining me today. Can I just be quiet and you can just keep talking about it? Because it's really <laughs> good for my ego. Because I, you know, this this is kind of fun. I, 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 you know, it's, it's like I forget about all the things I've done, and then they get kind of embellished a little bit, and it sounds yeah. even better. And I start thinking I'm bigger than I really am, and I kind of like that feeling for a few minutes. Yeah, we can just keep going. It's the it's the best part ah. of the interview. You know, there's this. Um, sometimes when I get introduced at conferences, I'll get up front, and it's always a little bit weird. You know, you walk up, and and I'll say that's the kindest introduction I've ever written and uh people always <laughs> <laughs> it's a way of taking the you know <laughs> the, the turning it around and having fun with it so but um john it's good to have you i remember i think the first time i ever met you was at uh, thriller fest and you were surrounded by a group of avid fans and i remember that you took the time to talk to everyone there was no one that you left out and then later at a con- at one of the conferences you were doing um your presentation on pitches and people literally lined up to practice their pitches on you, and you sat there for three hours listening to them, giving them insights, suggestions like this. I mean, that was far beyond the call of duty, and that just really impressed me, and it showed me that you have really this heart for encouraging people and, um, and you know, helping them to – helping the next generation of writers to succeed. Well, you know, that means an awful lot to me, and I never forget – um, how many people helped me um, at the beginning of my career, and how hard this business is. And I also, you know, when, when I, I went through a period where I was kind of, uh, you know, doing kind of obsessed with Hollywood. I had sold a movie and gotten one made, and I thought it was going to be easy. So I, I turned all my efforts out there. I, you know, got seduced, got bitten by the bug. And of course, nothing else ever happened besides a lot of great meetings that never led to anything. Yeah. Everybody has. I give. I, I have the best meetings ever, but everybody says that, and then nothing ever comes of them. But I was out of book writing for four years, hmm. and when I got back into it, I desperately needed quotes to read. I needed blurbs from authors to get me back on the map again. Um, and I asked. I had met. You know, I asked ten people for blurbs. And this is including Sandra Brown, David Morrell, Lee Child, right. Vince Flynn. These weren't small names. John Lesquois, Heather Graham, the list goes on. Every one of them said yes. And I never forgot how important that was and how they extended themselves for me. So when I get the opportunity to extend myself to someone else, and and I really take what you said as a great compliment, truly. But And, and the key thing is, when you're talking to over 100 people and they're pitching you or you know, they want to practice their pitches on you, um, even though it might be the 100th person you've listened to, it's the first time they've been standing, they've been waiting for two hours to do it, and it's their first time. So I have to make it feel like it's the first one I've heard all day. And, and you know, you, you, I, I really take pride in, in trying to, to help you know, fledgling writers, writers who haven't quite figured it out yet or haven't quite gotten their break yet, how to maximize their opportunities for success. Because here's the thing about this crazy career we're in, Stephen. We are in this career where you, there, is, there are no guarantees 
and very, very few people ever get the brass ring. And it's getting harder and harder to – the word I use is relevant, mm. relevance. How do you stay relevant as a writer if you're not a New York Times big bestseller? Right. How do you develop a brand? Because the fact is that the vast majority, the vast, 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 vast majority of authors never reach that level. And many of whom have really aren't New York Times bestselling authors. Maybe they had one appearance at 35 or part of an, an anthology or something. So the quest for relevance is about determining, is about figuring out how you can build your brand absent the kind of sales that we all want. So when I'm working with authors who are, I, you know, who have, who are, are, aren't as fortunate as I am. I want to get. Here's the point. I look up and I see the Lee Childs and I see the Steve Berries and the Jim Rollinses and 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 the people, the Sandra Browns, the, the the people that we hold on a pedestal because they're great people, they're great writers. But let's face it, they also sell a ton of books. You know, <laughs> they're perennial New York Times bestsellers. Well, here's the thing, Steve. The people that I take great pride in helping at Thriller Fest and any and in a number of other situations. Um, they're looking up at us, writers like you and I, the same way we look up at Lee Child. Because the difference between them and us is not as dramatic as the difference between us and Lee Child. That sounds crazy, <laughs> given that, that give, maybe Lee Child's a bad example because he, he's such an all-star now. Uh, but so we have to keep in mind the, uh, the fact that we're dealing with the fragility of people's dreams. And that's what happens when someone is pitching you their idea for a book. They're pitching you their dream because encompassed, encapsulated inside that pitch is their desire to be what you are, what you are fortunate enough to be, a published author. So you have to treat them, you have to treat their pitch like it's much more than 30 words or, or 50 words on a piece of paper that they're struggling to get through. Right. You have to treat it that you have their dream in your hand and you are the caretaker. And i got to tell you something. That is an awesome responsibility. And I get such a thrill, no pun intended, when someone <laughs> I've worked with, when someone I've worked with, come, I'll run into and they'll say, I sold the novel right. uh, that, that you helped me pitch. Or I got... You know, what I do now, I still do it, but now what I used to do alone with, and then later with, Kath, with my partner in crime, another f terrific writer named Kathy Entram, we used to do this together, and we had the long lines. Now there are 25 authors who we've, so we've divided up the plot, and we formalized what was back in the days that you're referring to, a very informal ad hoc process. We formalized it, and it has been a home run in all respects. And to see 25 authors giving of themselves that way for two hours in a ballroom, and you sit in a chair, and there's all these people lined up in front of you, um, and each one of them sits down, and they take a deep breath, and they pull out their index cards, and that's where we get back to the fact that they're presenting their dream. Well, this is a good transition. There's a lot I want to talk about, but as long as we're chatting about pitches, what is what, what are some of the secrets that I know you have kind of a technique you've developed uh, for for helping uh, authors? And I was wondering if you could just take a minute and talk us through that. Let, let's say people are listening and they're like, "Man, I, I I want to know that. I want to know that secret. What is it? How do well, I shape that good pitch?" You know, that that I, I first off, you know, there's no one answer to that. That's the first thing I say. You, you, a lot of people say you, you start with a what if question, what if dot dot dot. Sure. Um, I've been in a, I've been at a couple conferences uh, where the king of the pitch, and I, I'm just drawing a blank in his name, Cosberg. It's Robert Cosberg, K O S B E R G, and he's he has sold more movies in the room. He hasn't got an idea for the movie; he's got an idea for a concept. He's the one who sold a movie. He went into a room and he sold a. Uh, a robotic killer dog movie based on Jaws with Paws. <laughs> Literally. Jaws with Paws. This is Bob Kosberg, a wonderful guy, one of the most energetic guys. So I've learned a lot from him, but what I, what I think is crucial 
is you pitch based on your story. And I'm not just talking about the book that you're pitching. I'm talking about you. I tell people you lead with your strength. Those three words, lead with your strength. If you are, and remember, this is when you're pitching something to an agent to try to sell a book. This is specifically aimed at that, or a studio, or an editor. If you are ex-Special Forces, if you are an ex-Navy SEAL, if you are ex-FBI, CIA, doctor, lawyer, and you've written a legal thriller, you want to start out, you've written a book that is reflected in your experiences, then you want to start out by saying, I was a New York cop. For 30 years and there was this one case I could never solve and I've based it I've based my mystery thriller on that case boom the person in front of you has no idea what your story is and you've already hooked them because you're talking about yourself and now you you've given yourself credibility if I'm the ex ambassador to China and I've written a thriller about China or if I've lived in China for 50 30 years I don't start off by saying by going launching into what the the story is. Sure. I start off by saying, I lived in China for 30 years, and while I was there, I got this idea. Because now there is a relevance and credibility to like what it. you're pitching. Now, Good. Uh, the vast, a lot of people who pitch, though, are like me. They've done nothing in their life. <laughs> they have no real-world experience. They're in this box, in this bubble of their imagination. And that's where you have to rely on the story to be the, the, the pitch itself. First off, don't, it, you, you, there are no rules as far as, as length. It can be more than 30 words, although that seems to be the elevator pitch, 30 to 50 words, let's say. Um, but the key thing is, I always stress this, whatever you're pitching, and this could even be the second thing for people who have expertise or knowledge, a knowledge base that they've, they've, uh, um, they've emphasized first, you still want to have a pitch that, in, that also that doesn't just say what the story is about, but also the emotional stakes and why we should care about like the yeah, characters. Good. Because if you don't care, and, you, and I know, at, you know you do Master Craft Fest at Thriller Fest, and you do Craft Fest, regular Craft Fest, and I know you talk a lot about the importance of character. But very few people, when they first craft a pitch, think their characters matter. Here's what, here, and here's, let me give you an example. Uh, some people might say um, a firefighter, the, the, this entire book is going to take place inside a burning building, or the half, the first, say that you know, it's a new thing, a, a, a book that takes place inside a burning building with a firefighter who has only, uh, 32 minutes of air, and he can't find his way out. Now, that sounds like a re- what, what could be the beginning or mark m- makings of a great story. Right. The emotion comes in when you say, 32 minutes of air, and he only has 32 minutes to save his own son. Now, it's a personal stake in the action. You've, you've made the story personal and big at the same time. So now we know why we're rooting for this character. And if, if, if the, pit, the person pitching the story happens to be an ex-fireman, now what I call, when, when pitching, the way I describe it is you're trying to accumulate or, or show that you're, you have a lot of chips in front of you if you're a poker player. Let's say you're playing Texas Hold'em. Obviously, <laughs> you want to accumulate the most chips. Your life experience is a potential chip. The power of your, the concept of your story is a potential pitch, it's a chip. The emotional core of the story, trying to save someone that is important to you, is a potential chip. For exa- another example, if I were pitching The Talisman, the great story by Stephen King and Peter Straub, I wouldn't say a 12-year-old 12 year, a 12 boy known as Traveling Jack ventures into the outer world, a fantasy realm, to have great adventures. That's not the pitch. The pitch is, and this is the real story, a 12-year-old boy known as Traveling Jack ventures into the outer world's fantasy world in order to find the cure for what's killing his mother. Yep, exactly. Now, That's which, right. which yeah. one are you more likely to buy if you're a publisher? And which one are you more likely to represent if you're an agent? It's the one that emotionally 
involves you. It's the one that makes you care. And almost everybody you're going to be pitching to has a child or a grandchild in some cases, um, or they can certainly relate to it. Uh, so I think that it's you want to get, and here's what this boils down to, you want to do two things with your pitch. You want to interest the person you're pitching to in the in the concept of the book, but you also want you want to involve them on the emotively, not just structurally. You want to get them invested emotionally with the person the book is about. You I think do that's those great two things. Advice, yeah. Yeah, if you do those two things, and if you can add to it the fact that you have some life experience, um, some of the most powerful pitches, and I'm going to give you some examples of quickly because I know we want to move on, but some of the most powerful pitches I've ever heard um, at Thriller Fest didn't get to the point until well into it, like it might be about an abused woman. And what she and going after her attacker, yeah. And I'll say to the person in front of me, "Is this based on life experience? Were you abused?" Now that's not. How could I ask that? Well, my job is to make the pitch better, so I need to ask probe. Sure. And if they say yes, I say, "Then you need you are bearing your soul in the writing of this book, and you need to bear your soul in the pitch." If I were you, and you're and you can get comfortable with this, I would start by saying, "I was a victim of abuse, and I've written a book." inspired by that experience. That's a very difficult thing to do because it seems exploitive. But it's not exploitive because it's true. Something is exploitive only if it isn't accurate. This is accurate. So you want to be able to cast your own experiences, whether they be professional or or heroic in nature, or whether they may not be so good. James Elroy's mother was murdered by the Black Dahlia. Mm. Um, and he's gone on to write all these great mysteries, and he's always, you know, and including the Black Dahlia. But he's always been known as the writer whose career was created by the death of his own mother to a serial killer. Mm. So, wow. you know, I think the more you can make the person you're pitching to care about you as an individual. Because especially in a situation of speed pitching, which is what a lot of uh, writers and screenwriters, because we shouldn't confine this to novels, we should include screenwriters also. Because it's the same thing, writing is writing. But you're often in a situation where you're pitching to someone who has heard 50 pitches. And if you're the 50th, they may not be paying attention anymore. And you need to do something to get their body language moving forward in the right direction, moving toward you. You need to do something to, to be better, not better than the 49 who came before you, but distinct enough from the 49 who came before you to grab the attention of the person you're pitching to. That's great advice. I, I, like, I like how practical it is and also how well it ties in with so many of the things that we've talked about on the show before, and that is emotional resonance, personal stakes, um, and and you're actually using those storytelling principles to leverage the pitch, uh, because that's what what lies at the heart of stories that matter, that stories that people really believe in or really get behind. Um, it isn't just about action and suspense and so on like that, but it has to do with real people and the character, like you mentioned, and their journey and their struggles and discoveries and and so uh, that's it's good advice on how to weave that into the pitch. I'd never thought about those aspects before. That's why you have me on the show. <laughs> exactly. You don't want me to be superfluous. I mean, I got to come up with some. That was my one original thought for the day. The rest is going to be dull. <laughs> no, I doubt that. So I, I do have a question about. Okay, so you're mainly known for your Caitlin Strong novel. I wouldn't say mainly, but but well known for the Caitlin Strong novels and. Um, and uh, as a guy, uh, how do you climb into the skin of a female protagonist and make her both personable and kick-ass at the same time? You know, I, I take that, first of all, as a great compliment. And, and, and secondly, you know, if you only can write about what you know, the old Hemingway line, write what you know, sure. then the most you'll have is one book and maybe book and maybe two in you. 
I write from the imagination. You could ask me the same question about the, the, the serial killers that I've written about. And, you know, I did a series about a Palestinian detective. I'm not a Palestinian. Um, I've done, you know, books about, you know, special forces, Green Beret, you know, super, you know, kind of, you know, the kind of the, the, the typical thriller hero. I'm not one of those either. I think what it comes down to is a writer doesn't write. A writer is a storyteller who lets their characters, a thriller writer, I should say, is in, in particular, lets their characters do the work for them. I get into the head of my characters, and I don't know exactly what's going to come out because they take over. I let them do all the heavy lifting, all the hard work. I'm just typing along with what they're seeing and what they're saying. So in the case of writing a woman, um, it's a lot. It's based in my imagination, but it's also channeling. It's um, when a psychic medium, um, when you go to see a psychic medium and they channel some people who are no longer in this realm, and somehow they start talking about, you know, do you remember the day that he took you to the ba- your father took you to the baseball game and you caught the fly ball? Well, how do they, I mean, this is I'm not making this up. This stuff happens to people all the time. They're channeling, they're channeling spirits. I think writers do the same thing. And um, I once read this article, fascinating. I, I wish I had saved it, about the minds of schizophrenics and writers, creative people. <laughs> Pretty close, how, I would imagine. <laughs> when no, no, where the act, the primary activity in the brain, that part of the brain that makes you, you know, schizophrenic. Uh-huh. That's where all all our creativity comes from. Our brains are lit up as brightly as a schizophrenic's brain because we have a lot of voices in our heads. And the thing about what, what you're the best answer I can give you about writing Caitlin Strong is I trust her. I trust the voices in my head to take me in the right direction, to to let me know. And they don't always, you know, it's not. I don't always get it right the first time. Sometimes there are mistakes because remember, a thriller. One of the definitions of a thriller for me, I know there are a lot of people who do them in first person, um, but thrillers normally have multiple points of view. They shift with a lot of cliffhangers, with short chapters, boom, 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 boom. I might have five or six different POVs in a Caitlin Strong book. So I need five or six voices in my head at any one time. And I'll give you, let me give you a specific example. In strong light of day I have a scene that didn't mean much to me when I wrote it because it was organic, it came out of nowhere that scene has gotten such response and it's basically a scene where the villain the first, this is the, the first, the second scene you've met him, the first scene was at a, at a big board meeting where a young man with a prosthetic leg taunts him because he's blaming this guy's you know, uh, something this guy did created, invented, owns, is the, you know, he was poisoned by something and he lost his leg to cancer. Oh, right. So the guy embarrasses him, and you can't do that to this particular villain, and the villain shows up and is waiting for the guy in his hotel room when he gets back. And he doesn't go into that hotel room to hurt him. He goes into that hotel room to scare him, to make him tell him how he got the information that he did. But then the guy makes the mistake of saying the wrong thing, accusing him of being a bad father who lost one son in, in, you know, in Afghanistan and lost another son uh, who he doesn't talk to anymore, and that presses the wrong button. He takes the kid's prosthetic leg and beats him to death with it. When I started that scene, I had no idea that was going to happen. Yeah. It happened because the villain um, in Strong Light of Day told me it was going to happen. Not my intention. And if you, if you're willing to let your characters do this, and you know, I'm not look. I didn't make this up. Elmore Leonard would talk about this, and that's where so much of Elmore Leonard's great dialogue and some of his great lines came from. The the ability to trust your characters. Lee Child, we've mentioned him enough here. He should be paying us, right? <laughs> Lee Child doesn't outline. Now, other writers like Steve Barry, who's got a big bestseller out right now, that's terrific. The Lost Order. Steve Barry is a voracious outliner. He, James Patterson is a voracious outliner. I don't outline. I rely on my characters to, to plot the right direction. I know approximately where I'm going, but I rely on my characters to get me there. 
That's it's very interesting. We have a very similar approach, I think. I don't uh I don't outline or plot out my books either. And when you explain that, I can completely understand uh how that works for you. I mean, I think the same way when I approach my books. And I know that there's some people out there saying, like, "What is wrong with these guys?" like do these people really talk to them? These are twisted and, and definitely in need of counseling guys. But, but, um, but I think isn't there a fa- there's a famous play <laughs> called Five Characters in Search of an Author where the, the the playwright can't quite figure it out and they just appear to him and tell them what they want him to do and then they start arguing with each other. I I, I don't remember uh, who wrote it. Yeah, I, man, I don't know. But... Yeah. But, uh, yeah, no, I, I think I've put it this way, that the key is not just asking yourself what would the character do, but what would the character do if I got out of the way. And I think that's what you did with that scene, is you got out of the way. You said, okay, not just what would this character do, and then, but I'm going to let him do it. I'm going to get out of the way and see where it leads. And then it leads to somewhere you hadn't anticipated, but that was true to the story, and your readers acknowledged that they they connected with that them and the deep emotion of that scene. And you know, I think to give you, I, I think examples are good for for the the audience that we have today. In my opinion, the best book Thomas Harris wrote, if you're not counting Black Sunday, which was the most prescient, was Red Dragon. I think Red Dragon was better than Silence of the Lambs and better than Hannibal. The others we won't talk about. The other Hannibal Rising. <laughs> there is a moment in Red Dragon. Where I, where you, everyone just screams or, or or goes ah, you know, and it's the last line of a chapter where Dollarhide is torturing, uh, the villain is torturing a a, a news a, a, a tabloid reporter. Okay, and the line I know that is, scene. Sure. The, the line is, and then he bit his lips off. Yeah. And I, I look. Thomas Harris doesn't do interviews, but if I interview Thomas Harris. One of the things I would add, the first one of the first things I'd ask him is, did you know when you started that scene that Dolor Hyde was going to bite his lips off? And I'll bet you the answer is no, because it, you can feel the way it's set off by itself in a single paragraph. And this goes to the fact that sometimes a lot of developing, you use style to further your substance. That never would have worked if it was part of the paragraph above. It had to be set off by by itself, and I am I would bet you the royalties on my next book, which probably will be nothing. So that's okay. <laughs> I, so I'm betting you nothing um, <laughs> that that uh, Thomas Harris was not intending to have Dollar Hyde bite this guy's lips off. Because the fact is, is that that is not necessary for the scene. Because then he's going to light him on fire anyway. So biting the lips off was not something I think he planned. I think it was something the character told him he wanted to do allowing the books to grow organically and it is huge and i like even that the last aspect of what you said is that style and substance and we're going to gather of how it didn't it wouldn't have had the impact in the previous paragraph honestly i think every paragraph every word has to matter and how you said it and is it its own graph or is it not um all of that affects the reader's engagement and the little details like that that you notice in some – I know Stephen King does that too sometimes where it will have something as its own paragraph and some people might say, oh, it's, that's a sentence fragment or something. But it's like strumming – I don't know how – I'm not a musician, but like strumming a certain chord, right? And boom, you hit that chord and readers get jolted. And uh, so, yeah, that's, that's good. I like it. Well, you know, Cormac McCarthy doesn't use quotation marks. Yeah, that's one yeah. of our finest novelists of this of this age of this generation, and he doesn't use quotation marks. It drives me crazy. I've never asked him <laughs> why, but there must be a reason. I mean, now we're being honest today, so we need to look. Since this is more, this is a, you know a class. A lot of writers are listening to this. You have to look at writers. When, when I think of of two extremes, I'm gonna I'm gonna be nice. I'm gonna be mean, but I want to be accurate. Um, I'm going to mention, if you read the work of James Lee Burke or John Hart, who were probably the two, or James W. Hall, to me, those are the three best writers. David Morrell would be in that league, too. The best technical writers, the lyricism of their prose, in terms of every word, for different reasons. John Hart and James Lee Burke and James Hall are poets. David Morrell is a master tactician. You're in, you're in just great hands with all of them. 
And you can feel every word being measured and properly balanced and perfectly symmetrical, even in the dialogue, where if you put this on a scale, it would just balance out perfectly. Then you read Stuart Woods, and it just feels like the lines are thrown together. Like, and and I, he writes great stories, and Stone Barrington's a terrific character. But there's no cadence. There's no symmetry. Every description is the exact same as the one before. There's nothing that tells me I'm not reading a book. I When I read Morel, I read Hart, I le- read King, and he's, he's another poet in many ways. He's more of a casual poet in the sense that his language... I remember a line in Firestarter to this day that I read 30 years ago, you can eat rat turd and call it caviar. <laughs> you know, I mean, come on. I mean, you know, Elmore Leonard has the line where he's trying... This guy is trying to describe this real dumb moron who works for him, and he goes, if the guy was any dumber, all you'd have to do is water him twice a week. <laughs> I mean, you can't... Though that, th- those lines have a beauty and a cadence and, and, and a symmetry that tells the reader we're in this together. It, 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 it creates a life of the novel where the world stops functioning outside the book and becomes only relevant inside the book. This was the beauty of the never-ending story, where the hero is Atreyu, but the real hero of the book is Bastion because he's being drawn into the story literally. That is a metaphor, never-ending story. Literally, in all ways, that title is a metaphor for what all writers try to do. Stuart Woods, as much as I might enjoy reading his books on airplanes at times, um, until I forget, and then, then I wait a couple years and forget that I really didn't enjoy him that much. Stuart Woods never draws me in, no matter how much I may be enjoying the stories he's writing, plot-wise. But John Hart, I can I can smell what he's writing about. I mean, I, I can smell the trees in James Lee Burke. I can smell the moss, you know, the, the mist rising off the bayou. You know, David Morrell, who was the Hemingway of thriller writers, his short, terse, curt descriptions or more to the point in his tri- Victorian trilogy, you can the way he describes the mist over the Victorian streets and the and the and the and the, and the lanterns that are, that they use for streetlights back in those days flickering beyond their behind their shroud. This is what writing is all about: painting a picture in the mind of the reader. But it's not just it's a, it's not a still shot, Steve. It's a moving picture. It has sound. It has it has emotion. It, it has everything. And, and this is the job of, to me, that this is the primary responsibility and obligation the writer has to the reader, to create the world that will draw the reader in. I think people are instinctively or maybe naturally more either wordsmiths or, or storytellers. And the greatest writers, I think, have found a way, whatever their natural inkling is, whether it's to be a wordsmith or a storyteller, um, the great ones have found a way to develop not just their strength, but the other aspect of it, too. Like, I read some people, and the writing is so good, but there's really no story. Like, I get done with it, and I'm like, I don't really even know what happened, but the writing was good. Other times, I'll read this, I'll just be engaged with the story, like what you were saying, but I, I might say, well, the writing's not that great, but I can't put it down because the story has grabbed me. So so it's, we want to rise above whatever our natural inkling might be and learn from the other, whether it's the story itself or whether it's the actual the language, like the poetry of the language like you were talking about. Absolutely. It doesn't have to be poetry. It just has to be, you know, because not everybody can write like that. Yeah, yeah, I mean, um, th- that's a hard thing. It has to be what's natural for you. It has to be what's what, organic for the person writing. Um, and it, it, it's, it, it's the, you know, creating this world, you know, um, you don't have to be, um, you don't have to be these guys, that you don't have to be James Lee Burke or John Hart or David Morrell or James W. Hall. To, to be able to capture a lot of this. I, I noticed today, you know, a lot of voices, you know, um, you know, there's a lot of, con- there's a lot of 
edgy stuff out there, a lot of dark, edgy stuff. That seems to be the trend. I mean, um, there's a book I've got called Is Fat Bob Dead Yet? It's got just a great <laughs> title, Is Fat Bob Dead Yet? I mean, uh, Don Winslow has, you know, has done this with uh, the Dawn Patrol and uh, the death and life of Bobby Z and stuff like that. Um, and they're, being, they're, they're taking – being a writer is, 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 being, is, is exposing yourself. And if you're trying to do – if you're thinking too much, and, and that's the key, don't – if you're thinking too much, you're not going to write well. Because we always uh, – uh, the key is to be a storyteller. Don't worry about the writing. Be a storyteller. Like you're, that's the great thing with, with Stephen King. When you read a lot of his books, they feel like he's talking only to you. They feel like this is a guy at a campfire, and he's telling, us, he, he's, he's telling the story out loud, and, and it's becoming a book. You know? And in fact, as, as someone who's told a lot of stories orally, which is yeah. how I've honed my craft as a writer to a great degree, especially at summer camp years and years ago, I would tell a lot of Stephen King stories, and they're so perfectly formed for that setting. Um, and you're, talk, you're dealing with 12 and 11, 10, 12, 13, 14-year-olds. Obviously, they, their attention spans, you're going to know when you lose them. So I think we need, and this is the point I'm getting at, great storytelling, which means great writing, because to me it's the same thing, speaks to the child inside all of us. It reminds us of what it felt like the first time, you know, when someone read us a book or read us a story. It, it, it takes us back to a point to where we believe anything can happen and in the course of the story. Let me give you another example, and this goes to, to – to, I, I thought I had gotten past the point where I could be scared by a book <laughs> because I've read them all. So, I mean, what's going to scare me? I mean, you know, there's a lot – I could go into specific scenes. Then I read Dr. Sleep, Stephen King's long-awaited sequel to The Shining. And from page one, I was riveted. But when he introduces the villains, this vagabond group that travels the country in RVs looking for kill children to suck the life out of what they call steam, he calls them the true knot, um, K-N-O-T. And they've been alive forever. They're immortal. And now they're coming after this young girl who also has the shining. And the only one who can help her is the grown-up Danny Torrance from The Shining. There were scenes in that book that literally left me sweating. I mean, scenes, I, and then I said, you know, that's not, wow, that was an exception. Then I read Nosferatu by Joe Hill, Stephen King's son, and Heart-Shaped Box by Stephen King's son, Joe Hill. And these, both those books, too, scared the daylights out of me. <laughs> literally, literally, you, could, you, you, know, you had to be careful when you turned the lights off. What am I talking about? Those books worked for me because they made me feel like a kid again. Mm. And that's what great writing does. It makes the reader feel the same way he or she did when they went to their first Disney movie or they went to their, they, you know, they watched the, the first time they were so enraptured by a story. And what do, you, what do you remember about young kids when it comes to stories? They can go watch the same movie a hundred times. And I've never understood why, but it's something they, every time they watch that movie, they see something they didn't see before. Now, we don't, people aren't going to read our books a hundred times. We're not that lucky. And that doesn't mean, and what's the difference anyway? They only bought it once. So, so unless they bought it a hundred times, it really doesn't help. Um, but if you can reach the part of us as adults that can watch the same movie a hundred times, as a kid, um, you are going to be a successful writer. I what don't do care think, what you're writing. What do you, what do you think uh, that part is? I mean, what is that, maybe that kid inside of us or that story yearning person inside of us? Um, do you think it depends on the genre of the story or is it something more universal than it that? It depends on the genre only because we different readers have different um, – they, they, they gravitate sure. toward different forms of writing. So naturally, the genre plays a role. But the word you're looking for is imagination. Hmm. The imagination does not grow. 
The imagination is always what it was when we were kids. We refine it and we put it in a box so we can control it. But basically the imagination, we, we, we dream of different things is, is basically what it comes down to. But we never stop dreaming. And when you're writing a story that resonates with a reader, because we're getting back into the, the two R's, maybe we'll come out of the one, relevance and resonance. And making yourself relevant as a writer starts with being resonant as a writer, having your stuff resonate emotionally and into the imagination with, uh, and what, when you when you've done it, when you've succeeded, when you know as a re- reader whether you're reading something that has reached your imagination, it's when you can picture every single thing in your head. Not because the author has gone and given you three pages of description, right. but because the author has given you enough to connect the dots. There was a great exercise I once read about where they four artists were asked to draw the Marston House from Salem's Lot based on the description that Stephen King gave. Hmm. No four were even close. None of the four. They were all entirely different because Stephen King is such a great writer, such a great storyteller. He knows just enough to describe so the imagination fills in the rest. And that's what you want to do. This is why I never, I can't read Tom Clancy, whether he's the, the dead Tom Clancy or the, or, or the living Tom Clancy. I can't read any of it because there's no emotion. They're set. What he's describing is all boilerplate. It's all out of technical manuals. It is the antithesis of organic writing, the techno thriller. Not for me. I've never been a techno thriller guy. Yeah. You contrast that against, you know, writers who get their technology right, but they give they give it to us in two or three lines, not two or three pages. Because my imagination can fill in the gaps. I trust my imagination, and I trust that my imagination, when I write, is talking to your imagination. And this is the central point. Here's the point we have to leave. We have to. We have to come back to. It's that if you don't trust your imagination, which is that subconscious, which makes the book organic, if you don't trust your instincts, your instincts come from your subconscious and your imagination. That's where your characters come from. If you don't trust that, then you won't. Then you won't reach the opposing the the, 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 the the potential audience will not respond to you emotive, emotionally emotively it's not just visual in other words it's also visceral you want to hit them where it count, and that where, where they feel it and that's what makes stephen king you know when he's at his best in books like doctor sleep or joe hill and books like nosferatu and heart-shaped box, or some of the other authors I've already mentioned. Um, that's what makes their writing pop. It's what makes it work. It's not for everybody. Nothing is for everyone. But when I read it, you know, I, you know, I am just. Um, that's how I judge a, you know, a great book. It's that's why I always save. When I travel, I still read books. I don't, I'm not a digital reader. I don't, there's something about that thing in my hand I don't like. I don't know what it is. I like <laughs> the book in my hands. So whenever I travel, I really make sure I've got some books put aside that I'm saving that I know are sure things. And I make myself not read them because on an airplane, if you don't like the book, you can't get off and, go and stop at a bookstore. You're stuck. You, know, you don't want to watch, you know, you don't want to pay the nine dollars for the free TV, right? So, uh, you know, yeah, you, you, you're so it, it's kind of like that to me. When people say, you know, I knew I had figured this business out a little bit when when I when I heard so, from so many people who read me on airplanes, because that is the greatest compliment I can be given. I didn't even know I was, you know, boy, was you made this such a great flight because I didn't even think about the food or the peanuts or the, or the <laughs> lousy air or the guy sitting next to me and being cramped in the middle seat. I just want to thank you for that. Or if someone will write me who's who's been in the hospital and they're or they're going in and they say I'm taking four of your books because I'm going to be in for four weeks and you know I know I've got a book that I can you know for for every week and it'll take me away. Those are the kind of things. They're not New York Times front page reviews by Janet Maslin, but those are the things that tell you you're doing it right. Yeah, and you're reaching, what you're doing is yeah, working. You're reaching people. Yeah, no, I love it. I think I think what you're saying really it, it resonates with me because 
Um, the key, I think, it, it, there's something above just getting the syntax right and the commas right and the structure right or whatever that might mean. But there's something in the stories that really touch us that they just thrum. They just they build and they work because they touch us on a deeper level. And um, while I don't know that it's something we can just teach outright, we can certainly teach people the skills to develop that, you know, aspect in in their own writing i you know it's 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 a it's a you just raised a very good point (laughs) and this is not one i have an answer for how much of this it can be learned or how much can be taught and how much do you just need um and i don't know the answer to that i think there is an an instinct with with the greatest storytellers that came uh, and with my case, now I'm not putting myself as the, in that league, by the way. I don't want, but I think a lot of what um, I am was the result of being exposed at a very young age to film. My father would take me to all those the early James Bond movies with Sean Connery, the only James Bond, by the way. Uh, and I saw those movies dozens and dozens of times and double features when they'd come back before the days of megaplexes when there were real cinemas out there just big cinemas you know that but there was only one you know there weren't 16 and every six months dr no and goldfinger a thunderball and from russia they'd come back and i learned structure i think by being hammered over and over and over, just just being exposed to that the first movie i ever saw was 101 dalmatians and i often tell people that I think every book I've ever written is basically 101 Dalmatians. If you really look at the structure, it's perfect. The quest. Uh, has there ever been a worse villain than Cruella de Vil? First of all, the name. Second only, <laughs> perhaps, second only perhaps to Simon Barr Sinister. <laughs> you know, but Cruella de Vil, and she wants to kill a bunch of puppies to make a coat? Come on! <laughs> so the whole thing is, I think... It's not just what you're born with. It's what you're exposed to. My mother always read to me a tremendous amount. You know, I was always, I was one of those kids in the early days of television when we had two or three channels. Put me in front of the television. You know, and, and, and I, you know, you, you, you at, the, at a very young age, you can start to understand the concept of flow and story. And you don't always understand everything you're watching, but you know you're watching a story and you can follow it. Believe it or not, you know, you, you don't remember because who remembers when they're two or three? But you can so I think what your subconscious retains from your youth and growing up and what you're exposed to <clears throat> becomes crucial to um, the kind of voice you have as a writer. How do you teach what I'm talking about? There are devices. I mean, I, I, go, I do a thing, you know, if you look at my chapters, almost every one of them begins with dialogue. You know, there are devices, and I, this is something I, I talk about a lot at Thriller Fest in particular, the phrase from Homer. When, how long ago did Homer write the Iliad and the Odyssey? And he coined the phrase immedius reus, in the midst. Don't start at the beginning. Start after something has happened, right before something else is about to. And I can't tell you how much writing I see that, doesn't, that starts right at the beginning and, and we have to, we're, we're, you need to jump in. You need to plunge in. And because he, here's a key point, and this is what gets lost a lot. The first person who reads what you write is you. So the first person you have to hook is you. So you ask yourself, you're, you're, you've got a 20 page first chapter. Ask yourself when you really got swept in. Right. And if that's on page five, Page five should be page one, and you should intercut those first four pages as flashbacks or however you want to do it. But you don't start. You start with that first line. Harlan Coben does this brilliantly. Lisa Gardner does this brilliantly. Steve Berry does this. And they all do it, and they're all different genres. But they're all doing this amazing thing in those first couple paragraphs, not just first couple lines not just of the beginning of the book, but every single chapter. These are things that can be taught. I'm not sure how much flow, and I think there are things that need to be practiced after they're taught, Um, but I also think that Michael Jordan was not taught to be Michael Jordan. 
No one can teach you to be LeBron James. No one can teach you to be Michael Jordan. No one can teach you to be Steph Curry or Jake Westbrook or any of these guys, right? Not Jake Westbrook, but uh, Russell Westbrook. Jake Westbrook was a pitcher for the Cardinals. Uh, no one can teach that skill level. But now, you know, you say are people born to write? Lee Child and Ken Follett didn't become the huge bestsellers they are because they because it struck them as a good idea. It was because they needed the money. It was because they were both <laughs> uh, they were both broke. And they, they, you know, they had given themselves, you know, Lee had been fired from his job as a TV producer. And he tells the story, so I'm not giving anything away here. And he came up with Reacher because he needed to come up with Reacher. You know, um, and so it wasn't something that was this magical moment and how Jack Reacher came into existence because Lee Child needed a paycheck. Is there something wrong with that? No, it's called life. So that's right. It, 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 and there's absolutely nothing wrong with that. So the key thing to tell writers is don't look for inspiration at the end at the end of the rainbow because you won't find that any more than you're going to find the pot of gold. Inspiration has to be found within you, within the story itself. I just got back from a writers' uh, conference at a at a college in Houston, the Bio uh, the Bio City Book Festival. And part of what I did in the course of the week at this, community, this wonderful community college called Lone Star Community College was I worked with classes, and I, and I did this thing where I emceed an awards night for young writers, and, and they read their work, and then I commented on it. And there was one kid, I said, you've got to send that story to the New Yorker. He's a 19-year-old kid. He's never taken a writing class. And he wrote this amazing story called Jukebox that I went, it's perfect. It's just there. He read it out loud. And it was perfect. Imagine how the words would just fly off the page. If we, the, the key thing for writers, though, is if you hold yourself to that bar and you hold yourself to the Stephen King bar, you know, you, you're going to be disappointed. <clears throat> but you know something? Just because you don't win the batting title doesn't mean you're not a hell of a player if you hit 300. Yeah. And you, and, and you hitting 300 you're not using the same swing, and you're batting righty, and the other guys are batting lefty. You have your own style. You have to find what works for you. Yep. I know, I think, whatever success I've achieved, and I'm, I'm not even close, and I continue to ride this roller coaster up and down. It's, it's a crazy business. It truly is. But it's this, you know, um, when I write Caitlin Strong, I didn't set out and say I'm going to do – 110 short chapters and I'm going to be, you know, have everyone end in a cliffhanger and everyone start with a hook. That is, I'm like a film director. I'm trying to, I'm manipulating you into wanting to go on because I want to come back to what I said a minute ago. I'm the first person to read what I'm writing. So I have to ask myself, would this line make me want to turn the page? If the answer is no, I need another line. Hmm. You know, Ask yourself when writing, what is the purpose of this scene? How is it advancing the action in the story? If it has no purpose, it's not advancing the action. Why is the scene in the book? Or right. why is it ten pages when it could be two? That's the other thing. Sometimes a scene. And, and this leads me to, I, th I think when we start, when we can't, when we talk about this, we have to use the phrase, all great writers, in my opinion, have to be great rewriters. Because getting it right the first time is a very, very rare thing. Yeah, that's I know tough. it happens with some writers. There are some writers who want, who don't want to go back at all. But that's you don't even think about that. If you're right. <laughs> think about and and also I'm not saying it takes a hundred drafts either. What I'm saying is get it down. You know, tell your story, um, and then you know work out the problems later. You know. You can always work out the problems. What I've gotten very good at, Steve, is self-editing as I go. Yeah. Where I get to the point and go, whoop, whoop, stop. Like some, I get, you know, it's like I get a little, a flag goes up in front of me, and I go, something's wrong here. I don't, I need a moment of cohesion. Something's missing, and that's sometimes where my best twists and turns come from. Mm. I wrote a whole book once. I was two thirds of the way through the book, and I couldn't. I said, you know, I got to cut. I've got two characters, and they seem to be. Too much the same, you know. They're not the same, but it's like 
I don't need them both. And then I realized it's the same person. Ah, uh, so conflate <clears throat> them, yeah. And I'm not the only person who who, who came to that moment. I, I once read an interview with M. Night Shyamalan. I've never seen him talk about this again, but I remember the interview. I think it was a, it was an oral interview after The Sixth Sense came out. And they asked him, where did it come from? And he goes, well, I was writing a story about a failed psychiatrist at a crisis in his career who gets his, his, his karma, he gets his mojo back by helping a boy who thinks he sees dead people and really does. And it was, this is M. Night Shyamalan talking. And it wasn't until about halfway through the script that I got chills and realized, oh my God, he's dead. And I had made him such an alienated character when I went back to change the scenes, I didn't have to. Hardly at all. Because he was so, I had created a character so withdrawn. And, and the point of the interview was that M. Night Shyamalan thought his imagination was ahead of him. His imagination knew that Bruce Willis was dead before he figured it out. So it was an, so the sixth sense was basically an accident. I love it. It, it wasn't meant to be that way. But it was that moment where, where his imagination was taking him finally got him there, where he realized what he was writing. Most the, the the most wonderful thing about this profession as work is we experience that every single day we're creating to lesser degrees, sometimes to greater degrees. But you experience that moment where everything just falls together. And those moments of cohesion, of symmetry, are what makes a story accessible and what makes a story resonate and feel organic. That's the part of writing that I don't think can be taught. That's the part of writing that comes with trust in yourself, trust in your story, and trust in your imagination and subconscious. I don't know how to... Now, I do do a class at Thriller Fest about structure, which gets into this. So people experience it. But are they going to take that experience into their own writing to the degree... People like us who have been so who have done this a lot, um, it's very difficult when you're working with someone who's never finished a book, or is in their second or even third book. These are very difficult things for them often to relate to because they haven't kind of they're, they're, they they're still kind of a triple A. They haven't gotten to the major leagues from a creative standpoint yet. Others are there from day one. I think Stephen King was a very rare writer because yeah. I think it was there. It was always there. And then he lost it for a while, and then it got. Then now it's there again. For a while, it wasn't there. It wasn't there in Bag of Bones. It wasn't there in Gerald's Game. It wasn't there in in a whole bunch of stories he wrote. You know, in in the middle point of his career, but he got it back. He started trusting the story again. And I think that's a great place to close up. Is this idea of trusting the story, trusting your imagination, and connecting with readers in that in that place that imaginative place, that emotionally resonant place that um, that draws all of us back in again and again to the stories we read. So great conversation, John. Man, I, was, uh, I loved your insights and your passion for not only excellence in the story, but also, you know, just in the process, in the process of listening to the story and letting it grow as you go. And I know that our listeners are going to want to go and check out one of your books, now, the one I, I have in front of me is Strong Darkness, but I think that's probably a year or two old. So what's, what, where would you point our listeners right now to try to find where's a good place to start with your books? You know, I, I really think the Caitlin Strong books are the perfect ones. And a lot of people like starting the beginning of series, in which case Strong Enough to Die is the first. Um, so, and you're gonna, I, I think anyone who reads that one is going to read them all anyway. So I would start with Strong Enough to Die. I think... The last couple, Strong Light of Day and Strong Cold Dead, and the next one, Strong to the Bone. They're easy to find because they all start with Strong. What yeah. are you going to do? Branding, right? You had, you had your Night series, Rook and King <laughs> and Knight. You know, you run you know, Pawn, uh, which I like because that's the way I think of my life. You know? Yeah, that's but, right. Yeah, so, so yeah, I, I think you could start with the more recent ones to see where, where they're at now. Or you could start at the beginning with Strong Enough to Die because I think you'll see – what I talked about today most on display in those, in that series than anything else that I've done. And where's the best place online to to follow you, maybe when you might be speaking or appearing at an event, doing a book signing? 
Is it your website uh, you can or always, Facebook? You can always, you drop, always drop me a line at johnlandbooks.com, J-O-N-L-A-N-D-Books.com. Um, and I respond immediately uh, to email. Very, I, don't, I don't get a lot of them, so uh, <laughs> I don't get a lot of email. <laughs> so if somebody writes me, oh, my God, I'm so excited. I'm a fan of yours. It's like, oh, somebody sent me. You know, I got so excited last year. James W. Hall friended me on Facebook. You know, it's like, oh, my God. Uh, it's a guy who's writing I've admired for years, and That's he's also great. a great guy. You know, so it was a great experience. But, yeah, johnlandbooks.com. Okay, no excellent. And um, and to anyone listening, the best way to stay in touch with my books and public appearances is either at stephenjames.net or Twitter at readstephenjames. And for more information about our other guests and to check out more broadcasts, click to thestoryblender.com. It's a brand-new website. Hopefully it will be easier for mobile devices these days to listen to the other broadcasts. And, folks, always remember that the art of the story is all in the blend. We'll see you next time.